Welcome to episode 121 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. And thanks for joining us. Uh, today, the blockchain is taking over the podcast. That's right. Stuart Baker is out of town, and our guest today is Jamie Smith from the Bitfury Group. So we're going to cover the biggest headlines in Bitcoin and blockchain news during our news roundup. So I am Alan Cohn, formerly the head of strategy for DHS and second in charge of DHS policy, now of counsel at Steptoe. And we also have Jason Weinstein, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime po- prosecutions, including virtual currency prosecutions, among other things, uh, and is now doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. And Jason returns to the show after an extended absence, it should be noted. Yes, I was on special assignment for the podcast exploring the right to be forgotten. Yes, exactly. Uh, Jason and I also help run the Blockchain Alliance, a public-private partnership that creates a forum for Bitcoin and blockchain companies to engage with law enforcement and regulatory agencies to combat criminal activity on the blockchain, and Jason serves as the director of the alliance. And as I mentioned, our guest today is the awesome Jamie Smith, Global Chief Communications Officer for Bitfury. Prior to joining Bitfury, Jamie was special assistant to the president, and White House Deputy Press Secretary for President Obama, uh, and had worked before that in the intelligence community uh, for uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's uh, presidential campaign and for Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. So let's get started. Um, I think probably the biggest news in this area to have broken in the last few days is the challenge that has arisen over the DAO uh, and Ethereum. And so I think the first things that uh, that prompts is, what are the DAO and what is Ethereum? Uh, so for uh, for all of our listeners, um, you are probably familiar from our previous episodes on Bitcoin and blockchain um, with uh, Bitcoin and its underlying technology, the blockchain. Um, Ethereum is a blockchain-based ecosystem. It is its own blockchain uh, that was uh, created uh, by a known group of developers uh, who created the system to be uh, a little bit more easily programmable and more amenable to smart contracts, uh, contracts that can actually be programmed into uh, the token level and can be executed uh, when certain events happen. Um, and so Ethereum has drawn uh, a number of developers who are interested in uh, creating applications that um, uh, that rely on or take advantage of smart contracts. Okay, so if that's Ethereum, then what's the DAO? Um, or what is a DAO? Because DAO is actually an abbreviation uh, for a distributed autonomous organization, uh, which is basically, a, a, a just as it sounds, a distributed organization uh, that runs on a, a blockchain like Ethereum. Um, and in particular, uh, one of the defining characteristics is to be autonomous. That is, it can operate uh, on its own uh, in some ways. So what is this DAO? Um, so this DAO, which is often referred to as the DAO, um, what is uh, an organization that was constructed essentially to fund projects to be built on Ethereum? Um, and so you will buy uh, membership, basically tokens, uh, in the DAO uh, with uh, Ethereum's native currency, which is called Ether. Um, you purchase DAO tokens with your Ether, and you and the DAO tokens permit you uh, to vote yes or no on funding of different proposals that are submitted to the DAO. And different companies and organizations, individuals can submit proposals to the DAO for funding. 
The distributed and autonomous part of all of this is there are no people in the middle. Uh, the organization is all run on protocols. Uh, and so the submission guidelines and then the circulation of the proposals and then the voting are all done by protocol. There is no person in the middle of all of that. Um, as what has been reported, the founders of, or the creators of the DAO uh, were looking to run this as an experiment or looking to raise about $500,000 in which to seed different initiatives on Ethereum. Um, and as of the close of their uh, purchasing window for DAO tokens, they had raised approximately $150 million, or 12% of the total amount of money invested in Ether. Um, and so during most of the month of May, uh, you go direct, directly to the DAO or through, different, uh, uh, through some different platforms and purchase DAO tokens. And after May 28th, you could begin to buy DAO tokens through secondary uh, markets, through exchanges and others, um, using not just Ether, but also Bitcoin, also dollars, etc. So this raises a bunch of interesting issues, especially for us lawyers, um, like what's the legal status of the DAO? Uh, is it a corporation? Uh, is it a venture capital fund? Is it a syndicate or a general partnership? Um, it also raises this question of whether DAO tokens are currency, or are they securities, or are they derivatives? Um, and if this DAO is uh, an, an organization, where does it exist? Um, and uh, note for the for a little bit later in our story, who is liable um, if something goes wrong? Is it everyone who holds one of the tokens, like a general partnership? Um, is it the computer code? Is it the creators um, uh, who have all kind of stepped out of the management of the DAO, but rather just just created the code to run it? Um, so this all sets the stage for what happened last week. Um, so uh, again, in May, uh, people bought approximately $150 million worth of DAO tokens and we're holding those tokens waiting for proposals to come in. Um, what was interesting was that at the end of the purchasing period, a number of security researchers published a pa paper which described a number of security vulnerabilities in the DAO. Um, what happened last week is that someone, uh, characterized as an attacker, although we'll asterisk that also, um, appeared to exploit a different security vulnerability, um, which is uh, going ahead and creating what's referred to as a child DAO, or basically a sub-DAO off the original DAO. In essence, if you want to withdraw your money, your Ether, from the DAO, you make a request, and that, that, uh, that Ether is placed into a child DAO for a certain period of time, um, uh, and then you can withdraw it as Ether. Um, what happened was an individual went in and moved about 3.6 million uh, Ether, which is valued at about $55 million as of last week, less now, from the DAO into the child DAO uh, using something called a recursive call, which is basically, rather than being able to just withdraw your own money, you set up a system that makes recursive requests to withdraw that same amount of money um, and that that money is withdrawn multiple times uh, rather than just the once. Uh, and so as noted, the DAO imposes a 27-day waiting period for withdrawing funds once you've converted the DAO tokens back to Ether. Uh, and since Ethereum is a public blockchain, like the Bitcoin blockchain, all of this can be seen. Um, however, the problem is that the DAO funder, founders and the Ethereum Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that administers Ethereum as a whole, 
don't have great options about what to do. So this, this ether is sitting in a child DAO. It's visible on the, uh, on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, but here are basically the, the options. In a sense, uh, the, uh, Ethereum foundation and the, and the coders that, that are part of the, the Ethereum ecosystem could hard fork, uh, the DAO code and effectively void the attacker's transactions. Um, but that would be seen as a way to revoke a transaction on a public blockchain, something that's a key security feature of a public blockchain. Uh, they could soft fork the DAO by simply locking the child DAO and preventing anyone from moving those tokens, essentially freezing just those funds. Uh, and that might be followed by a hard fork that allows token holders to recover their ether. Um, and that suffers from the same challenges as well. They could roll back the whole Ethereum ecosystem to its state a few hours before the withdrawals took place, but that drags Ethereum into the issue. It's basically similar to a government bailout in the Ethereum ecosystem, um, and that's something that uh, public blockchains in, in general were designed to try to avoid. Um, Ethereum miners could implement a freeze, which would give DAO token holders time to withdraw their funds, basically create their own child DAOs, and then convert their tokens to Ether, but that also drags Ethereum into the issue. Um, or they could just conclude that the code is the code, um, or as the, the founders of the, of the DAO have, have talked about uh, from the beginning, the code is its own documentation, um, and that anything done using the code is permissible. Um, and so in a sense, this wasn't really a true breach in the true sense, but rather an exploit of code as it was written. The issue, of course, is that would leave the attacker with the funds. The main danger that, that people are concerned about now is copycat attacks. Uh, since code changes to Ethereum work by consensus, similar to the public, uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, and they take time to approve. The one thing that's been, uh, that's, that's important to note though is that the core Ethereum code database doesn't appear to have been impacted or compromised. And so there's no apparent impact on the integrity of Ethereum itself. The issue is that um, uh, is this application, this DAO application that sits on top of uh, of the Ethereum blockchain. You know, the the thing that's interesting about this is the extent to which the founders of the DAO were victims of their own success. You know, in in many ways, um, the DAO, certainly on a smaller scale, would have been and could still be in the future a great laboratory for working things like this out. Uh, but because it got so big so fast and uh, and perhaps was launched before a lot of the, the potential vulnerabilities were tested and addressed. Um, now there's this public backlash. So hopefully, uh, you know, uh, um, the folks who created this and people who are looking to create uh, other permutations of this won't be deterred and, and, and there will still be opportunities to, to experiment in this ecosystem. Yeah, it's a good example of just how fast things are moving. In a sense, Ethereum is only, what, a year old. The DAO uh, token buying period only began at the beginning of May. And so we really need to strike that balance between the speed at which the technology is moving and the, the time that's necessary to, uh, to test and figure out um, where the challenges are going to sit. So staying in the, in the world of, uh, of non-Bitcoin uh, digital currencies, uh, Ripple was awarded the second, only the second bit license from the state of New York uh, Department of Financial Services, which allows Ripple to expand the use of XRP, which is its native token on its system, uh, to New York customers. That comes about nine months after Circle Internet Financial received the first ever bit license. So at this rate, New York will get into double digits sometime in 2022. Um, although DFS actually says that, that more licenses are coming soon. Um, but this license comes at the same time as uh, a uh, accelerated industry effort to focus attention on the problems inherent in a state-by-state -state licensing system. 
in response to a report from the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency recently on financial technology, there were comments submitted by a number of industry members and advocacy groups, uh, including Coin Center, the Chamber of Digital Commerce, Circle, Coinbase and Ripple, all members of the Blockchain Alliance, all calling for a national licensing regime as opposed to this piecemeal state-by-state system that we have. And they all made the point in various ways that that a national system as opposed to the state-by-state system would lower the barriers to entry for startups, uh, would reduce incentives for companies to relocate or focus their growth and expansion overseas, uh, which is happening now. The companies are increasingly turning to countries with more efficient and startup-friendly licensing regimes like the U.K., Singapore, and Australia, uh, and all of them have advocated for uh, lower barriers to entry for startups and and uh, and more incentives for those startups to to grow here uh, to be born here and to grow here. And we've seen this in, happen in different ways in the in the internet environment, right? In terms of some areas are left to state by state regulation. Some uh, like internet sales tax were subject to a moratorium for a while. Uh, some things are are the subject of federal preemption. Um, and so, you know, what do you what do you think is the what do you think we're likely to looking at here from a from a time span perspective? It seems like we're right at the beginning of this discussion. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it will be. There are states that are still trying to figure out what they're going to do, and and there's no question that they've got jurisdiction. Uh, it's a, it's a whole other discussion as to whether the feds should assume jurisdiction and and preempt the states. So I think this is the beginning of what will be a very protracted discussion. And and unfortunately, during that time, there will continue to be these barriers to entry uh, for startups to develop in the United States, and, and there will be increased incentives for them to go overseas where the government seem to be uh, and, and uh, regulatory agencies seem to be more willing to embrace the technology and to think creatively about how to how to deal with regulation. Yeah, and of course, this is really a global system, and so you see uh, startups um, working both with uh, with other uh, – with established financial institutions, with uh, national governments, um, and uh, but the financial services sector particularly is global, um, and it's necessarily going to touch – the U.S. in individual jurisdictions and as a whole. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, along those lines, um, turning to to our friends in Europe, uh, the European Parliament passed a resolution on May 26 concerning virtual currencies. So now we are back to, uh, in large part, uh, the Bitcoin uh, and blockchain ecosystem. It was interesting. Most of the media around the resolution involved the call for the European Commission to establish a task force to, to as they described it, monitor virtual currencies in order to prevent their use in money laundering and terrorism financing. Now, if you go into the resolution, you see that, in fact, Europol made the statement that they couldn't say with any – at this point that, that – that virtual currencies had been used in terrorism financing uh, at all, although we know that there are money laundering concerns and we know that there are companies, um, both the companies that that, um, that work and transact in this space as well as analytics companies uh, that help do uh, the uh, anti-money laundering uh, work um, that are very serious about keeping that out of the ecosystem. Uh, the resolution actually includes a number of interesting points. Um, and the task force itself is intended to be broader than just uh, anti-money laundering and counterterrorism financing. Uh, the resolution really clearly notes from the outset both the opportunities and the risks of virtual currencies and distributed ledger technology. And in its own words, stresses that virtual currencies and distributed ledger technology have the potential to contribute positively to citizens' welfare and economic development, including the financial sector. Uh, the resolution includes an entire section describing distributed ledger technology use beyond payments, 
Um, the resolution calls for a proportionate regulatory approach that's aimed at fostering innovation and safeguarding integrity uh, and notes similarities between distributed ledger technology and Internet technology. Uh, and with respect to the task force, the resolution calls for what it calls a horizontal task force, uh, meaning it cuts across the relevant European Commission directorates to explore various applications of virtual currency and distributed ledger technology, not just in the financial uh, services sector or in the payments area. But I will channel Stuart just for one moment. Uh, the resolution also does, and I quote, uh, recall that the Internet, despite the attempts to promote a multi-stakeholder approach, is still governed by the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, an agency of the United States Department of Commerce. Uh, so we, uh, we still are reminded that, um, that that still burns uh, at our, our friends uh, across the ocean. Um, I, th I think the move really reflects the EU's cautious approach to the technology and one that reflects appreciation for the need not to impede uh, innovation. You know, and, and also close to our hearts, around the same time that this resolution was being adopted, a member of the EU Parliament uh, was quoted as saying that with some forensic work and analytics tools, the uh, Bitcoin and the blockchain actually make it easier to trace illicit transactions that are done with digital currencies than with cash. And that's something that you and I talk about all the time. And and, and uh, that's a message that we try to get out all the time. Yes, and and many of the companies that uh, that do that type of work, uh, the forensics and the analytics, are members of the Blockchain Alliance as well. Um, you know, it's interesting. The there are other things moving uh, within Europe along these lines. Uh, the European Commission is considering how the EU anti-money laundering rules apply to Bitcoin and digital currencies, and con considering whether and how to apply. Uh, those AML laws to digital currency exchanges uh, and to wallets. Um, and in early June, the EU's Securities and Markets Authority issued a paper on regulatory challenges posed by blockchain implementations in securities markets. Uh, that paper recognizes many of those same benefits of blockchain technologies and financial services, including faster clearing and settlement, reducing costs and friction, greater transparency, auditing and compliance. You know, basically the same benefits causing banks all over the world to study blockchain implementations and also studying how it fits into existing regulatory frameworks versus the need to study new regs. And this is kind of the same question that, Jason, you were just talking about, about the U.S. and the state-by-state -state regulation and, and, and how this is all going to turn out. Um, as a note uh, for all of our friends in the, in the uh, blockchain and distributed ledger environment, um, the the uh, Securities and Markets Authority is soliciting comments on that paper uh, from financial firms uh, in Europe by early September. So coming back across the ocean again, uh, you know, as we just talked about, uh, this move for a federal licensing regime is, if it ever happens, a long way off. But there's no question that right now the blockchain has the attention of the federal government. Uh, and in the last month or two, from the White House to the Fed itself, uh, the blockchain has been the talk of D.C. Um, just as a few examples, in early June, June 1st through 3rd, there was a symposium at the Fed, led by the Fed, the World Bank, and the IMF, which included central bankers from some 90 countries. It was called the International Conference on Policy Challenges for the Financial Sector. And one day of that three-day event was dedicated to the blockchain, including remarks from Adam Ludwin from Chain and Janet Yellen, the, the head of the Fed. And that portion of the conference was organized by our friends at the Chamber of Digital Commerce, and in her remarks, Janet Yellen encouraged the industry not to be afraid of technology and, and the potential for disruption, but to embrace it and learn uh, more about it. And in Adam's key, keynote address, among other things, he talked about how a central bank-issued digital currency, kind of like a digital dollar, could work. And that's particularly timely that, that uh, a, all these central banks are having this discussion 
at a time when not so long ago the Bank of Bangladesh was hacked and there was an attempted theft from a central bank in Vietnam, both of which could have been prevented had there been a blockchain-based system instead of the kind of archaic SWIFT uh, system and, and central database system that those banks operate on now. Yeah, the White House got into this this too, right? They, they did in, in a number of ways. Uh, the White House had a fintech summit at the old executive office building featuring Brian Ford from MIT, who uh, you'll hear about during our interview with Jamie, um, who is himself a, white, a former White House technology policy official. Uh, and among those who addressed the group were the Secretary of Commerce, Penny Pritzker, uh, various White House officials, um, our friend Matt Rozak from Block, and, and who's also the, the chairman of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, was there. Uh, and in late May, the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology had an event where they heard from a group of industry leaders, including Jerry Brito from Coin Center, and the White House Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity, which was just born in February, uh, has already uh, uh, convened and heard uh, testimony about blockchain technology from Jerry Cuomo from IBM. So the blockchain is very much a presence in discussions in Washington, um, which is extraordinary given uh, since it hasn't been that in the public consciousness for that long. But it's great that, that Washington's paying attention. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And it's not just Washington, as we've been talking about uh, all through the the, uh, the podcast. But um, uh, but even to go to this question of the central banks, um, we have news from north of the border that, according to the Financial Times and Coindesk, uh, the Central Bank of Canada is developing a digital version of the Canadian dollar uh, based on blockchain Technology and the currency would be called CAD coin. Um, I was hoping it would be called Molson, but uh, <laughs> uh, presumably that stands for Canadian dollar coin. It apparently involves uh, the Bank of Montreal, CIBC, the Royal Bank of Canada, Scotia Bank, and TD Bank, uh, as well as the banking consortium uh, R3CEV, uh, which is working on on all sorts of types of blockchain applications for financial services organizations. Um, the CAD coin would work on what will apparently be called the Jasper Distributed Ledger Settlement Platform. There's probably a great story behind that that can be enjoyed best over a couple of Molsons. Um, Molson does not sponsor this podcast. Uh, this uh, The system that, the, Canadi- that the, the Central Bank of Canada is implementing uh, is a private blockchain. Uh, with the Central Bank of Canada doing the conversion of cash collateral to CAD coin, um, and the central bank maintains the ability to destroy uh, CAD coin once it's redeemed back for Canadian dollars. Uh, and network participants are financial institutions, um, and the CAD coin asset registry is owned by the Central Bank of Canada. Uh, the Central Bank of Canada itself described the CADCoin project as an experiment, uh, quote, solely to better understand the technology firsthand. Uh, and the project is solely focused on interbank exchanges. But it's a great example of uh, a central bank uh, in a major co- uh, country, you know, taking it upon itself to experiment with the technology, to see what it's like, to try it out, to test it, to kick the tires um, and see what's possible and what isn't. So even though Molson doesn't sponsor the podcast, we are hoping that if we mention Molson enough, we'll get free Molson. Um, so Molson is a great beer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and now to our interview with with Jamie Smith, uh, the Global Communications Chief for Bitfury. Uh, Jamie, first, I have to ask you to respond to the rumors going around that you are, in fact, Satoshi Nakamoto. <laughs> I'm obviously Satoshi, but I think it's actually even more important to note that we are really all Given the decentralized network, I think we can all lay claim to this awesomeness. So in all seriousness, how did you get involved in this space? You had an incredible background in government and in the private sector and and then uh, jumped into this world last year. So tell us how how and why you made that transition and how you found it so far. Well, as we say in my business, thank you so much for the question. Um, You know, I will say 
that this is um, probably the craziest thing I've ever done um, and also the most exciting and interesting and riveting um, thing I've done in I don't even know how long. And that may surprise people because I have worked in some pretty exciting jobs in my life. But um, I am the most unsuspecting uh, and unusual character in this space, I think. Um, you know, it's, it's occupied by all these brilliant technologists and innovators and futurists and I'm a communicator. I tell stories for good. I've been doing it for years in and out of the government um, and political sphere. And basically, I was home very happy in my post-White House job at the world's largest PR firm. And I had just had my second child. My son was born um, 11 months ago, almost to the day uh, today. And he um, was 10 days old. And I was sitting there, and I got a call from a former colleague of mine, Brian Ford, who works at uh, MIT in the Media Lab focused on digital currency. And he said, hey, listen, I was just at this event uh, with Richard Branson on his island, and the BitFury Group is this big company, and they're what we call miners in the blockchain space, and you know, they're looking for a global head of communications. And I just went silent on the phone and thought, you are crazy. This is insane. Of course, I would not leave my very safe job and go work in this space because what I knew about it was wrong. I said to him, you know, that's just criminal money and it's this weird system and no one knows what it is and it's, it's all in the dark web. And he said, well, you know, you're wrong and I appreciate why you think that, but you're actually really wrong. So I think you should take the time to really learn about this. And so here's some links. Here's more information about the company, talk to them, learn more, I'm here to answer any questions, and just think about it. So I did. I spent three months thinking about it and reading and learning, and I think I went through the same evolutionary process that a lot of people go through, just mine was more <laughs> labored and, and many months long, where I started thinking it was bad, and then I started learning about it, and then I started asking a lot of questions and poking holes, and then I started learning more and reading more, and finally I had this more sort of epiphany that this was a very, very groundbreaking technology and that it was so far beyond finance and it was secure and it was world-changing. It could actually make people's lives better. And that's what I care about and that's what I work to do. And so I really, I feel like I jumped off of a cliff and took this job and I have not looked back one day. We're doing remarkable work and it's so exciting and I have no regrets. So, you know, you mentioned the, the, uh, some of the opportunities that blockchain has to change the world. Bitfury had a big announcement earlier this week about some of the things that it wants to do, uh, and projects it wants to support to change the world. Tell us about that. Yeah, we're very excited about this. So, um, one of our advisory board members is a guy named Tamika Tilleman, former State Department. I have known Tamika, we actually can't even remember how long we've known each other. We think it's about 15 years, and we've always been working in the pro-democracy, good governance space when I worked for Secretary Albright, and he did as well. Anyway, we decided that there are a lot of really exciting ideas out there, a lot of great ways to potentially demonstrate the power of the blockchain, but there's no real institute or system that is generating some of these pilot projects in a thoughtful, transparent um and structured way. And so we launched a partnership on Monday between us and the New America Foundation, where Tamika now works, post-State Department, and the National Democratic Institute and the Global Community of Democracies, and we think other partners will join us, where we are going to serve as kind of a clearinghouse with a board of governors who will help determine which pilot projects we think we could probably produce. And by produce, I mean get all the right partners, get all the right technologists, get the funding, and launch them around the world. And we're thinking four or five, you know, 
is our target for the next year, year and a half. And we would like them to be done responsibly and in some structured format so that whatever we learn out of these projects, we can report out to the world. And we can give businesses and governments insights into lessons learned, successes and failures, and basically not only and serve as a as a mechanism for other institutions to, in a low-risk way, actually learn a lot about this technology without having to launch a zillion projects themselves that they're not in the position to do so. So we're really excited. We have a lot of work to do, but it's great work, and, and we're, we're thrilled. So, Jamie, so tell us about Jamie. what some of those uh, types of projects would be, because obviously, you know, when we're talking about the those types of institutions were were now far beyond buying uh, pizzas with Bitcoin. So, what are what are some of the types of initiatives that that uh, that you hope this mechanism will will help sponsor and drive? Sure. Well, I don't exactly know because we haven't gone through the process, but I can tell you what kinds of projects we've been approached on. We have already people have talked to us about doing something with um, electronic health records, doing something with voting, doing something with music, doing something with vaccines. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's, there's the bigger ideas of how we can help with identity and, um, and particularly curb, help, help with the refugee crisis and the, um, and trafficking. So these are gigantic, those are some gigantic efforts, um, but we want to try and find pilot projects that are small in scope, but have a larger impact and are done in ways that are responsible and where we know that the records that we would be putting on the blockchain are intact so that we can actually see the benefit of this technology. Um, one project we do already have underway is sort of the inaugural project um, of this institute, and that is the Bitfury Group project um, in the Republic of Georgia for land titling. And we're doing that with the famed economist Hernando de Soto, an amazing group of technology folks on the ground. We signed an MOU with the, with the Georgian government, and for folks who aren't aware, the reason that we are doing it there is because the World Bank ranks um, the Republic of Georgia third in the world for land records. And so having that really, um, uh, the, the records intact and, and, and having a team of skilled experts on the ground and a willing institution in the Georgian government that wants to try innovative solutions to their challenges is, um, is really exciting. Yeah, and that's that's one of the challenges in the area, right? Is this challenge of finding the data with integrity that then you can use the blockchain to um, to secure and to protect and to ensure against kind of future disruption. It's um, it becomes more that's of a challenge. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think that you know our view, our vision through this institute, through the what we're calling the Blockchain Trust Accelerator Institute. Um, or the BTA is that we are, um, we believe that we, in order to successfully launch pilot projects, the most critical piece is that you have to have both willing partners and data that has integrity and is intact. And once we can demonstrate the, the power beyond finance of this technology and people can learn from it, who knows what will come from that, but I do believe that you know, to start projects like this in places where there is a great deal of friction and corruption and the data is not um, intact is, is, a, is, a, is a mistake. I think that the vision that we have is that once we get all this up and running, in years from now, hopefully that will incentivize countries that 
are not in great shape to want to get their act together so that they can then move into these programs and they're, and then send a message throughout the world that they are right for investment, et cetera. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a really important vision. And of course, one of the, one of the challenges is that there are misperceptions about the blockchain and Bitcoin. So what do you, what do you think is the greatest misperception about Bitcoin and blockchain that has to be overcome for a lot of this to be uh, adopted and for governments to feel comfortable in, in adopting this, these technologies? Well, I would say there's three categories of people in the world. Um, there is a very, very small percentage of people who know everything about what this is and how it works. Very small. Even though sometimes in our environment it may seem like that group is large, in the grand scheme of things, it's not. Um, the second group is a group that is expanding. Um, it is a group of people who know something, and um, what they know is usually sort of accurate, but also not really. Um, I would say that's kind of where I started when I was approached about this. Um, just having a lot of misunderstandings about the, the, that this is criminal money, or this is a dark web, or it's just like, a, it, it's not worth looking into because it's a mess or whatever the, the people, whatever the negative connotations are, or just generally they just don't understand how it works or why anyone would care or move into this system or really ask them the biggest question is why, sh why, why should this matter to me? The third category is the largest. And I don't know what percentage, but I'm guessing a very gigantic percentage of the world literally doesn't know anything about it. Never heard of it. Never considered it. Doesn't <laughs> even know what you're talking about. And that, I think that the greatest challenge overall to this technology is just lack of education and lack of outreach and, and an overall kind of marketing campaign that is global to get people to understand what it is and what the value is. But we're working on that. And when when you have gone around in your new role at Bitfury and talked to people both in and out of government, what have you found is the is the view that most people have about whether the blockchain and, and digital currencies are secure? Are secure. Well, I think that even more than that, what I would say, let me, let me answer one question and then that one, because <laughs> I want to. Um, what I have found is that when I go around and talk to people, there is a general enthusiastic agreement that we must find a way as a community to communicate better around the world about what this is. Um, people are very interested in that effort, and even though I work for the Bitfury Group, our vision is to bring all of the members of the ecosystem together and try and coalesce around um, a little bit simpler, better, clearer messaging for the technology. So I'm working hard on that effort. I think that what I what I find when I talk to people is that there is a deep, deep desire for once people get over the hump of understanding what this is to adopt more innovative solutions to, you know, economic challenges, um, uh, efficiency challenges. I mean, most people who work in any institution around the world, if they really wanted to take a minute, would admit that their systems could use some upgrading and could use some help. And so politicians, governments, business leaders, organization leaders, NGOs would all collectively admit, and they have to me, that they absolutely agree there are upgrades that need to happen. And the nice thing about this technology is that it offers a really strong opportunity to leapfrog right into it without having to, like, go through so many of the different processes to upgrade the current systems. This is this is really the missing piece of the internet that's finally here. On the security side, you know, there's a there's a hill to climb. But once you climb it and you explain to people why it offers so much more security than what we have today, 
they, that is when the aha moment happens. That is when you see they're kind of mind blown and you see the wheels turning in their heads. And it's such a wonderful moment because every time I'm in a meeting, there will be about 23, 27 minutes into the meeting that moment. That's when somebody says, huh. And then they start thinking of all the different applications and, and, and then we really start turning and thinking of through, through ideas. And it's, it's exhilarating actually. So I, I found when I've talked to people both on, on the Hill or in the executive branch or in the private sector, one of the, the perceptions for that second group of people who've heard something that you described, who've heard something about this but don't really understand it, what they've heard is Silk Road and uh, and the association of Bitcoin in particular, but other digital currencies with crime and ransomware. And they've got a general perception that this is you know criminal money, which is, as you said, that's where you started. Um, and I found that people really, uh, it, it takes a while, but you can get them to do a 180 and realize that not only is this not a currency for criminals, but it's actually friendlier, friendlier to law enforcement than it is to criminals. Um, how do you think the, the community can do better in, in getting that message out? Well, I think we need to find a very clear way of explaining why it's secure. And unfortunately, we've spent a lot of time over the last seven years as, as this technology has been developed explaining the development process and explaining the back-end technology as opposed to explaining what it delivers and the results of it on the, when, when we start the conversation. So I think that with some more creative communication and just um, meeting people a little bit where they are. Uh, you know, we're, we're never going to – there are certain people in the world who need to understand every single angle of how the technology works, and then there are people who don't. You know, I, I definitely um, believe that there are systems that are working on the current Internet that I trust, but I don't actually need every to know every single angle of how that technology works, and that's okay with me. But, I you know, I think that – there are going to be different audiences for understanding all the different technical possibilities of this. And then there are people who are going to need to understand, you know, 10% of it, 20% of it. We have to come up with a better narrative. And we're working through some videos and some PowerPoints and some one-pagers that can really give people a primer. And then once they get interested, if they want to know more, then there are other, they can have a deeper technical discussion. What I, I find actually is one of the, the, the things that is most surprising to people when they hear about it is, is how industry is actually working together to teach law enforcement and security agencies and regulators how to catch criminals who are using the technology. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. It's such a brilliant idea. The Blockchain Alliance is the number one most impactful thing that um, anybody that I meet with can hear about. When I tell them what's actually happening on the back end of this and that law enforcement industry, an industry approach law enforcement to teach them how to use this, there is an additional mind-blowing factor because then they really start thinking about, you know, I know that the people understand this and they say to me, well, then why would criminals use the blockchain and Bitcoin? And then you know that they really get it. And you think, yeah, exactly, that's the point. It's so much more secure and it's so much more traceable and, you know, it's a ledger. So obviously what comes with that is a a, a level of fact-finding and investigative resources that really law enforcement hadn't had before. So it's um, I think there's just a lot of a lot more stories to be told and a lot more understanding that needs to happen. But, you know, once there is an – now that there's been one case solved using the blockchain that Katie Hahn was leading out in California, uh, U.S. attorney, but – I think that the more stories we can tell of actually how this is being used to solve crimes and to stop crime, um, the more people will be able to wrap their heads around it. Real life stories are much easier to 
explain the impact of a technology than getting into the weeds about how that technology works. As I always like to joke, my mother will never understand how the, how the Internet works, but she definitely knows that she can buy things on it and she can see her grandchildren. And that is, you know, you have to talk about the results of the technology and what it's going to mean for people's lives. So the Blockchain Alliance is literally changing the world. So, you know, you mentioned uh, the um, Necker Island Summit that you all had recently. I was at the one last year. You and Alan were just at the one that was held a couple weeks ago. Tell us about that summit, why why it is that Bitfury thinks it's so valuable and, and what you hope comes out of it. Yeah, so this is, I wasn't at the first one at, um, as well because I was obviously um, not with the Bitfury group. But one of the reasons I went to work for Bitfury is because they have their eye on the future because they want, they're dedicated to global change for better and while they're obviously, you know, capitalists just like everybody else, they want their business to succeed, they want this technology to improve lives, make systems less friction-filled, and to do whatever we can to end corruption around the world. And so what better place to talk about the future and how to make the world better than on the island owned by the greatest futurists that we all know? And so... um our, the founders of our organization actually know Richard Branson, and he very kindly invited a group of people um, sponsored by Bitfury to um, his island for three days. And the whole purpose of this event, there are tons of really valuable blockchain events around the world. But this event is really special and different because it is, it is specifically about the future and about creating projects that can actually literally change the way that things are happening today and into, you know, in the years to come. And so... Instead of inviting a bunch of people who are in the tech space, what we did was we ended up inviting people who are in the world-changing space, who are, you know, completely dedicated to our vision of trying to make people's lives better. And we spent three days talking and brainstorming, and even though it was in this beautiful setting, even on the zip line going off the side of the island, people were still talking about the blockchain and blockchain ideas. There was never a moment where there was this discussion about anything else. The passion that people have for this, and the, the power that this technology has to improve the way that systems work and bring so many people who are not part of the global economy into the fold is limitless. And to, it, it, there's something special about that island that gets you thinking about what can happen. And what's so exciting about working for a startup is that the bureaucracy almost, almost doesn't exist. You, you can dream it, and then you can build it, and then you can do it. And, and if you have the right drive and all of the energy that you need to do that, it's really possible. You know, a lot of people don't realize that the Blockchain Alliance was actually born at the first uh, summit in Necker and that the roots of the Georgian and land titling project you mentioned were also born there. So it be really exciting to see what comes out of this one. But one of the things that we decided to launch in addition to the um, – we had the idea about the Trust Accelerator with the pilot project for a few months, but we solidified it on Necker. And then collectively, all of us came together on the island and decided that what's really needed – and we sort of announced this while we were there, but we're going to be doing so much work on this, is the global is a global blockchain business council. There are many institutions around the world that are trying to collaborate with business, whether it's in the U.S. with the Digital Chamber of Commerce or in London with Innovate Finance, and I believe Australia has a great trade association. What there isn't is a really um, functional and effective global blockchain business council, and so we are going to launch it. With as many partners who want to join us, we're very excited about that, and we think that there um, there needs to be a set of guidelines that businesses can 
coalesce around, very simple ones, but clear ones. And we're hoping to have our first meeting um, in the next coming months where we're going to invite various businesses to join us. And, you know, for the first year, I think our major goal is just going to be to convene a lot of really important business advocates and um, and educate and work on educating and getting more people, going back to your original question, to understand what this is. You know, I will make one last point, if you don't mind, about the education side of business. It's interesting. I mean, I'm obviously in this space because I want to tell this story and I want people to really understand the power of the blockchain. But I will say with putting a positive spit on the ball that even in the face of people thinking that this is criminal money and it's corrupt and all of these misnomers and all these misunderstandings, it's the, the price of Bitcoin has doubled since I started in this job. IBM, Microsoft, PwC, I mean, the list is growing exponentially every day of companies that are investing in blockchain technology. The banks have invested over billions of dollars in R&D on the blockchain. So even in the face of misunderstanding, it's amazing how quickly this technology is, is growing and, um, and, and proliferating around the world. And I think that what is, um, my view is that Imagine what could happen if we actually had an effective communications campaign from global business to, you know, consumers to media to influencers, et cetera. So that's what we're going to try and do. So I don't think it's a coincidence, or maybe it is, that the price doubled since you got into the business. So uh, uh, don't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you take, what, take from that what you will, I'm just saying. <laughs> All right, well. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to uh, – oh, Well, it was thrilling. And, uh, and we, we really appreciate it, and we look forward to hearing much more uh, about all the things that you talked about in the days and weeks and months to come. Thank you, and thank you guys so much for your leadership. I think um, this Blockchain Alliance, as I said before, is truly transforming the, the world, and your hard work every single day is, um, is, is both impeccable and incredibly, incredibly critical. So – Thank you, and um, it's, it's lovely to talk to you. All right, well, great. Thank you to Jason and also to Jamie. Uh, as always, the CyberLaw Podcast is open to feedback. Send your questions, uh, suggestions for interview candidates or topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. We're also always open to receiving good reviews on iTunes and other podcast aggregators. So this has been Episode 121 of the Steptoe CyberLaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Coming up, we will be joined by Fred Kaplan, author of Dark Territory, The Secret History of the Cyber War. We hope that you will join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.